Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Gennady Estreich and Harriet Morav. They are the editors of the book, Soviet Jews in World War II, Fighting, Witnessing, Remembering, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press 2014. Gennady Estreich, is professor at the Skirball Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at New York University. Harriet Morav is a Center for Advanced Study professor at the University of Illinois. She is also Catherine and Bruce Bastian Professor of Global and Transnational Studies at the University of Illinois. She is also a member of the University of Illinois Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures, and Department of Comparative and World Literature. She is the Interim Director of the Center for Comparative and World Literature also at the University of Illinois. Harriet and Gennady, it is an honor to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourselves? Um, If you don't mind me asking, where did you grow up? What formative events in your lives inspired the scholars you are today? Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, but I wouldn't say that growing up in New Jersey was a formative event in in my life as a scholar. Um, A formative event in my life as a scholar was um, falling in love with the Russian language at a very early age. And then over the course of time, developing an argument against those who said there was no Jewish culture in the Soviet Union after the 1930s. And and this book and many other books that I've written are all about that argument that Soviet Jews were soldiers, they were witnesses, they were victims, they conducted memorial activities in the immediate aftermath of events that took place near their homes, and that Jewish culture was not a washout um, in the Soviet Union, that is a product of Cold War cultural uh, uh, animosity between the USSR and the United States. And we're still sort of creeping out from under that. But um, uh, I, it's not so much a formative event in my life as a formative argument in my life as a scholar that it, that that brought me to the point where, you know, talking with Gennady and there's no book on the Soviet Jewish uh, war, war experience. Uh, Let's, let's, let's do something. And, and it was a meeting of the minds. My beginning is somewhere in, in Ukraine. Yes. I know exactly where, yes, it it is in a city in, in Ukraine. And I was, uh, privileged to be born and I grew up in a Yiddish-speaking family. Yes, my father was a historian, a teacher of, of history before the war at Yiddish schools and after the war, Ukrainian and Russian schools. Yeah. So Yiddish became my uh, one of my first languages, yes. And, uh, and afterwards, I, for, for some years, I was uh, at uh, in, in Moscow, and I was managing editor of a Yiddish literary journal that was published in Moscow. And later, uh, I moved to Oxford, yeah, where I did my 
to doctoral studies and and so on. And eventually, 21 years ago, I, I ended up um, at New York University. So concerning uh, the the theme of the book, I grew up surrounded by actually officers, officers, uh, veterans of the Second World War. My, my father was an officer. My uncles, all of them were officers here. And uh, and all of them came, yes. And then some of them didn't come. Yeah, we also have such uncles and other relatives who didn't come. So I grew up listening to to their stories. And not only the stories, of course, about fighting, but in general, the Holocaust-related stories here. So this is a very important topic for, for me personally as well. Yes, not only academically, but also personally. You know, sometimes I get even emotional when it comes to, to this topic. And I just finished writing an, an article for a Yad Vashem publication on, on Jewish officers in, in the Red Army. So I continue from time to time, though it, it's not uh, by far not the main uh, 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 avenue in my research here, but still I come back every time. There are many people you thank in your acknowledgments. Would you like to express gratitude to anyone publicly? I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> acknowledgments. Um, we didn't, I don't know how many. Uh, I first of all uh, want to acknowledge Harriet. <laughs> Without you, this book would have. Uh, I want to acknowledge uh, you, not Yes. Also, without <laughs> yeah. whom, you, you know, we actually thanked the U.S. Holocaust Museum and the NYU Department of uh, Russian Russian Studies. I mean, I'm not sure that we we actually, to our shame, thanked that many uh, people. But I would like to acknowledge that um, uh, we have lost people who are very prominent in the in the study of Soviet Jews. Uh, people. Mordechai Altschuler is no longer with us. David Schneer is no longer with us. And I, I'd like to acknowledge um, them. Yes. And of course, also uh, the person who triggered the whole exercise, uh, a professor at our university, unfortunately, I don't remember even his name. It was so many years ago, who, who came to our department with this idea, you have to organize a, a conference because before uh, the uh, volume, there was a conference, a conference that finally led to to the publication, uh, preparation publication of, of the volume. Yeah. Yeah. What are the primary themes in this book? What message or messages does your book convey? Well, the primary themes of the book are the um, histories, histories of Soviet Jews um, as soldiers and their representation of the war effort in the Soviet and the Soviet Jewish press. And then um, we have a section on representation, documentation, and interpretation in which we looked at poetry cinema, photojournalism um, that directly represented, imagined, and described events of the Holocaust as they unfolded on Soviet soil. And then the, the last section is memoirs by prominent figures, Soviet Jewish figures, who uh, served in World War II. Uh, one of them, for example, Buddy Slutsky, a wonderful, wonderful poet who was also a procurator and was responsible for army discipline and did not publish in his lifetime, but published later um, his account, his memoirs of being in the Soviet army as a Jew. There's also an underlying topic <clears throat> that uh, I don't believe we spelled it out at that time. But actually, uh, during the Second World War, uh, over 400,000 Jews were in the army. Not necessarily during the entire period. Someone was just one day and, and killed on, on, on this first day, and so on. Someone uh, were young in 1941, but uh, were not so young, uh, were, were of this age, uh, uh, when they could join the army in 1943, 1944, and so on. So we're, we're speaking about uh, hundreds of thousands of people 
or those who survived, who came after the war back, uh, some of them stayed in the army, but the majority of, of them returned to civil life. And they played uh, an incredibly important role in Soviet Jewish life after the, the Second World War. Because they came as veterans of the war. Uh, many of them were members of the Communist Party. Uh, many of them were educated or had a chance to be educated after the war. And, and they formed, uh, shaped a group in a, a, a category even in, in the Soviet Jewry that uh, they formed a kind of a core of the Soviet Jewry after the Second World War. Because given the fact they were veterans, that they were educated, that they were members of the Communist Party, it, it meant that there were people who could, and in many cases would be promoted, would be appointed to various important, whatever the importance is, could be local importance, it could be regional importance, sometimes it was national importance uh, of positions. And uh, some of them became household names. As Harriet mentioned uh, uh, Boris Lutsky, a poet, and then there were many other writers who, uh, as young people, were soldiers and officers in the army, musicians, artists, and scholars, and, and so on. So we're speaking, uh, actually, the book is uh, uh, essentially about a very important uh, segment of the Jewish population in the Soviet Union. This book came out in 2014. It is now 2023. Has your thinking on this topic changed in any way since the book came out? Why or why not? Have you reflected in any new or different ways? Have you learned anything new? Has any feedback changed your perspective? Definitely. New archival material, new uh, things written and published. So it was... I think that it, it changed the, the the strategy, yes, but it it, it in in thinking about it, but uh, the amount of information today is is different, is different. More more details, more information, more not only primary colors, but but something in in between various hues, yeah, and uh, of course it is different. I would say the war against Ukraine. Um, makes the actual factual engagement with what the Soviet Jewish experience was, what the Holocaust was, all the more important to put before the general reader that Ukraine was not the enemy in World War II. Ukraine was not the Nazis. The Nazis were the Nazis. Um, and and um, Jews today, Ukrainian Jews, are, are fighting the war, as, for example, in the in the person of the president, you know. So given the tremendous distortion of history and the loss of historical memory, I think it's it just sort of deepened my sense that it's very important to get the story out of of uh who who was fighting whom and who was doing what in in World War II? Um, uh, and um, in subsequent um, work that I've been in, involved with, um, uh, this just it just feels all the more um, urgent given the incredibly um, divisive, hateful propaganda that Putin is using about you know Ukrainians crucifying children, which is something Jews used to be accused of, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And in, in a sense, it is still this issue that uh, uh, it started during the Second World War, that Jews were underrepresented in the army and so on. And, and, and it is still, you know, so many decades after this, some people continue to repeat the same story. Jews didn't fight. Jews uh, uh, during the Second World War somewhere in, in Tashkent, in, in Central Asia, rather than at the front line. So it is important to uh, not just to to what is it to to argue, but to argue, being equipped with figures, with facts, with the research, and so on. And, and luckily. Uh, nowadays, we have uh, better access to archives and a lot of publications. Once more, uh, again, a, a lot of publications and and also a, an enormous uh, number of interviews collected 
interviews uh, with the veterans, the Jewish veterans of, of the war. So all, 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 all this helps. What is your book's contribution to the historiography of Soviet Jewry? Well, one, there were hundreds of thousands of Jews fighting in the Soviet army. Two, Jews were not only aware of, of the Nazi genocide and victims of it, they remembered their, their brethren and sisters who were, who were murdered, um, you know, for decades. Um, it's picture has changed, but you know, there were no monuments at Babi Yar. That was, that was kind of the line at the West. The Soviets didn't memorialize. There is no memory. Um, and I think one big section of the book shows that writers who were officers and uh, wrote directly about the Soviet, the, the victimage, the genocide at the time. And it was well, it was well known. I mean, I think we forget that the Soviet Union was the main instigator of the Nuremberg trials. So those 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 are uh, contributions, I think, that the book makes to the historiography that still need to be made, even though the story is somewhat different, as Gennady keeps rightly pointing out. We have new materials, new publications, new interviews. Uh, we're still making that argument. Um, uh, one, Jews fought. Two, Jews uh, remembered and memorialized. Yeah. And you describe the different genres of artistic expression that Jews utilized in the Soviet Union. Can you tell us about the similarities and differences between Soviet Jewish photography, Soviet Jewish film, Soviet Jewish television, and Soviet Jewish literature and poetry? How did the different media of art impact the kinds of themes, motifs, and messages communicated? It's important to... Uh... To start from that, there was no Jewish television in the Soviet Union. There was no Jew, There were no Jewish films, and strictly speaking, it is also a question how to define what is Jewish literature, what is literature written by Jews in in other languages, so, so non-Jewish languages. So it it is also it is a question of of definitions. Yes, and and uh, 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 clearly. Uh, there is no one definition. There are at least two definitions here. Yeah. But but certainly, what, what uh, is important that mainly mainly it was written, it was staged, and and so on, performed in uh, in the framework that was not Jewish. It could be by Jews, and in many cases it was by Jews, but it was not. It was not a, a Jewish a, a Jewish film. It was not a Jewish organization. It was not a Jewish newspaper because a Jewish newspapers or, or Jewish journals or publications. It was in in the Soviet Union. It it meant in Yiddish or something translated from Yiddish into Russian, Ukrainian, or some other languages. But it it was. Minor. The mainstream was in different languages, in other languages, mainly in, in Russian, in Ukrainian, and and others. So it 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 creates a different picture, and it creates a different pattern of uh, the representation of of Jewish topics, of Jewish uh, arguments, and so on in the Soviet Union and in the countries of the West, in the United States or elsewhere. Because in the United States, for example. Uh, there's the Jewish press, these the, the Jewish organizations, and so on and so forth. Yes, so so in 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 the Soviet Union, it hardly existed, and it it, it uh, the, the result is of course that it, it was quite different. We do have Inikite. We do have other publications, and some of the most well known and important um, pieces of writing that circulated in the Soviet Union in Russian at the time were written by, you know, Ilya Ehrenberg was the chief architect of propaganda and he did talk about um, the Nazi murder of, of Jews. The very famous, The Oath by Itzik Pfeffer, which appeared in Russian translation in the same year that it was published in Yiddish, was extremely well, well known and well promulgated. Um, uh, Stories that were published in Russian, for example, by um, Vasily Grossman, um, uh, 
the old school teacher, which is actually lays out a Nazi plan to exterminate Jews and how you separate children from adults. That was published in Russian. Um, it certainly, I would, anyone reading it would consider it Jewish. Um, there are many other examples. Um, um, Ilya Sivitsky is, I saw it about the massacre of Jews in outside of Kirch and, and his poetry about trials of collaborators. I mean, so remember the Soviet Union actually wanted to look like the defender of Jews in this period of World War II. Um, so, um, you know, the government created the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, whose organ was Anakite and so forth. Um, uh, there were films, there was photojournalism, um, and it requires reading it in a, in a certain way. After all, when I went to school in the United States, the Holocaust was one very skinny paragraph in history books. It was not, you did not talk about the Holocaust in public school. There was no requirement to discuss it. There was no attention uh, given it. So, I mean, millions of people not in the Soviet Union did not know about what was going on um, because the information was in fact um, suppressed. Uh, that's another perspective. Yeah, but and maybe it is also uh, worthwhile to, to mention that uh, there's the, a separate corpus of, of literature, uh, uh, and not only literature, but first of all, literature uh, written, uh, Holocaust-related literature written by non-Jews in various languages, in, in Russian, in, in, in Ukrainian. Uh, recently, I was sitting at the Holocaust M M Museum in Washington and, and listening to uh, presentations on uh, a literature written in Lithuanian by Lithuanian writers, and so on. Even, even you know, there is a, a prominent poem written by Isaac Pfeffer, character, or, or mentioned a couple of times his name here yeah, because he's uh, one of the central figures in in, in English literature at, at that time. Yeah, uh, and and he, uh, he wrote this prominent uh, poem. Uh, I am, I am a, a Jew. I am a Jew. It was really, and, and he came to the United States with this poem and, and read it. But actually, the first poet who wrote, I am a Jew, and, and my guess is that maybe uh, Pfeffer, uh, in a sense, modeled his. Um, it was an Uzbek poet. An Uzbek poet, you know, he, his reaction to the Holocaust was that I am a Jew as well. Yeah, and then so on. So you can find a very interesting this sort of uh, uh, artistic uh, yeah, expressions. Yeah. What kinds of diaries are examined in your book? Who wrote them? What do they teach us about diaries as a source of history? Diaries, it, it, it's in general very important because the main specialist, when it comes to diaries, the main specialist uh, diaries of the time of the Second World War, it's uh, Professor Oleg Budnitsky. Yes, he, he he dealt and deals a lot with with diaries in general, Jewish diaries and non-Jewish diaries during the war. And he argues, and I I believe him, that actually uh, Jewish diaries or diaries written by Jews are very prominent in 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 the genre. Yes, uh, it was really during the war in the army. It was strictly speaking; it was forbidden to have diaries for, you know, security reasons. Yes, so if if the diary is captured by the enemy and so on, but still, uh, some people uh, ignored this ban and actually uh, would write, and and they are very interesting and revealing. Uh, diaries. Importantly, it is not something that a person would write. 10, 20 years later, yes, what, you know, our memory is not a, a, such a reliable inst instrument quite often. But it was, uh, you know, the immediate reaction, immediate reaction or in something uh, that happened today, yesterday or something else, yeah. And, uh, and recently, actually, during this period of time between the publication of this volume and today, quite a few books came out really publications of the diaries. Diaries by mainly Jewish officers. 
because it, it, quite often it, it would come by offices because the, an officer usually was better educated and quite often an officer uh, wasn't necessarily uh, the entire time in the trenches. Yes. So there was more, the situation was quieter, let's put it like this. So diaries of officers, uh, there are diaries of women officers, yes, uh, uh, who are uh, interpreters during the war, uh, doctors during the war, or, or in, in, in other capacities, yeah. So it, it is a very important source of information for his for historian. Can you tell us about the publication Anikheit? the newspaper of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. Can you contextualize it for us? It's, during the war, there was established a, such a body, Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee in Moscow. It was in, At that time, it was outside Moscow, actually, physically, when it was first uh, established. But afterwards, they were based in Moscow. And, and they were allowed to publish a Yiddish newspaper, Anikait. That means unity. Yes, because at that time, the title itself is very important because uh, the Jewish, uh, uh, this, uh, in, 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 in the Soviet ideology, the unity of, Jew, of, of Jews worldwide was not recognized. The whole idea of a worldwide Jewish nation was seen as wrong. It was bourgeois. Zionist, whatever, yes. So, the, 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 uh, according to the official uh, guidelines, there were Soviet Jews, there were American Jews, there were French Jews, and so on. But there, there was no worldwide Jewry. But you, you, during the war, only during the war, it was allowed to uh, stress unity, unity of various Jews and the Jews from various countries. Therefore, the title indicate as unity. It was a, a news paper that uh, was published usually uh, the circulation was 10,000 copies it wasn't a daily it was initially once every t 10 days and afterwards they were allowed to publish as a weekly uh, and uh, uh, 10,000 copies about 1500 copies would go abroad so it was really read by a very uh, small number of Jews compared to, to the entire Jewish population. And it published uh, various stuff, you know, translations from Russian, uh, official, you know, uh, news published, uh, not translation of various you know, cultural or not cultural news, and, and also poetry, some prose stories. So it was literature as well was present in, in any case. And this newspaper, it was established in 1942. I don't remember exactly the, 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 the day, but I remember the day of its last issue. It was November 20th, I believe, uh, 1948. So during this period of time, it was published. And there was a sister publication for a while in New York, also called Anycate. And they would use some material from Moscow, uh, from the Moscow newspaper, reprinting it, but also their own stuff. I, actually, I remember that many years ago, I had no idea about the existence of this American sister publication, and I ordered uh, Anycate at the New York Public Library, and suddenly I received something else that I, I didn't expect to get. <laughs> yeah, this is how this information came to me, yes. That's funny. Yeah. I want to just add that um, for the literary researcher, Anikite is a kind of untapped resource because the prominent writers that we know that were famously killed, 1952, Bergelsen, Holstein, many others, published versions of work that they later refined and transformed and published in a different version later. So... One of the most important Holocaust pieces of not of fiction that I think is still neglected is a story called An Aedis or A Witness by David, Ber uh, David Bergelson. And he published an early, several early versions of it in Enochite, one of which was called Schreibendik or writing. And the story is about people writing down testimony. And you can also see 
testimony, actual historical testimony from a Jew and the ways that Bergelson transformed this testimony into a short, it made it a part of a story. In other words, a Jew gives an oral history. This is what the Germans did to me. This is what happened. Bergelson writes it up as a piece of a story and he calls the story writing. And then later he changes it again and he writes, he publishes a story uh, called An Aedis, uh, which which uh, is going to be in this book of translated stories called In the Shadow of the Holocaust. So it's a laboratory of Soviet Jewish writers' creativity through the experience of World War II, because you see different iterations of the same um, themes. And actually, each story or each material published in Anycate also had an, an original version, yes. Yes. Oh, some something I have it. It is a pure coincidence that I have it on my desk. This is this hard disk with a uh, copy of the archive of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee and, and also of, of the newspaper Anycate. So oh. you, you you see the manuscripts how how they uh, manipulated and how they doctored and how they changed or whatever. So it is it has. Yeah, in 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 Yiddish it was called. I, I remember from my experience at the, when the uh, Yiddish journal it was called an old original, so pre-original. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. To what degree was censorship imposed on Soviet Jewish writing and writers? What could they say? What could they not say? What kinds of consequences would they experience if they said things or wrote things that they should not have? It's a question. It's a topic for a book. Not for for a short. Mm. It is really really everything would, would Pass through the filter of censorship, and even after part, uh, this filter and published after the filter, a couple of years later, the writer could be accused of publishing something nationalist, something questionably Soviet, or, or simply anti-Soviet, and so on and so forth. So, so this is difficult stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't limited to Jews, of course. Yeah. Yes. Any, anybody mm-hmm. publishing anything was subject to censorship. Mm-hmm. I, I usually illustrate it by the fact that when I was appointed this managing editor, I was entitled to have a business card. Yes. Wow. And in order to print a business card, it 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 it, it carried very sensitive information: my name, telephone, yeah, yeah in in two languages, on one side Yiddish, on another side uh, uh, in, in in Russian. Uh, uh, I couldn't printed or uh, the printing shop couldn't start printing it without a signature of a censor. So even a business card had to pass uh, censorship. You still have it? I have some there. Oh, <laughs> I'd love to see it. <laughs> maybe in Oxford, maybe not here. Yeah. Okay. In what ways did female Jewish writers in the Soviet Union express themselves differently than male writers? Can you compare and contrast? Can you comment on the importance of gender in Soviet Jewish writing and literature? It's a topic for another book. Yeah. Mm. Yes. I am writing now actually a chapter in, in, in uh, for the book that I'm writing now. It is a chapter about women writers, yeah, Soviet women writers. And, uh, and their number was not huge. 
Yeah, unfortunately, but they were very interesting writers, very interesting writers. Um, in terms of the expression, any human being expresses here yeah, in a different way. And of course, it is the expression is also gender related here. Yeah. Uh, there was maybe uh, actually statistically more poets than prose writers everywhere. If if we take generally Yiddish literature in the United States, in Poland, and uh, uh, poets uh, among uh, uh, women writers, uh, poets uh, dominated, dominated romantic poetry or, or, or not romantic poetry. So, in what way it was different? Yeah, it is. You know, it, mean, it depended on 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 the authors. Yes, I think. Uh... So one of the prominent examples I discuss in my 2011 book, Music from a Speeding Train, Shira Gorshman. I mean, her story is about going back to destroyed shtetls, hearing, seeing the silence on the streets, sort of hearing this kind of ghostly screaming voices. Um, I think her stories are not that different from male writers who also use the genre, the travelogue, you know, going back to the shtetl. Um, so Shmuel Gardon's stories and Shira Gorshman's stories of post-war experience and memory are probably um, comparable. Um, but in general, I would say that um, women writers, I mean, just like male writers, you know, filter the historical event through the um, the personal experience. I mean, the tendency to avoid the prophetic voice I think is probably higher among some women writers than men writers, but uh, I don't think it's completely um, absent either. Yeah, of course, but you can find something in 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 poetry written by a woman that you you don't find in uh, poetry written by a man. I I am on my table a poem that you know I love you, but uh, but you have a wife. And, and I miss you. Of course, there are some some topics. Yeah, of course, it could be a different way. A man would would write, "I love you, but you have a husband." Yes, but in in any case, there are something very specific topics. Of course, how was the Babi Yar massacre remembered among Soviet Jewish writers? Can you elaborate on its meaning and significance to them? Uh, well, you know, it wasn't. An absolutely unique event. I mean, in scale, perhaps, but they, there were many ravines. You know, Yar means ravine. There were many of them. They, many massacres happened in ravines. Um, the reason that Babi Yar comes to such prominence is this famous poem by Yevtushenko that says there are no monuments. And so what, those who do research on Soviet Yiddish writing find that there's plenty of verbal monuments to Babi Yar, that there were other poets and writers. For example, Itzik Kipnis wrote a series of short, very short, very simple stories in Yiddish about making these kind of pilgrimage trips to, be, to Babi Yar, getting off the bus and walking like, like they walked um, to Babi Yar. Dear Nister wrote um, about uh, Babi Yar. Many, many, many Soviet Jewish writers um, memorialize these events. And um, uh, so I think the name is the most prominent name in in the western imagination of the soviet of jewish holocaust but it is doesn't it doesn't really have the same m meaning not that it wasn't important but there were many you know many ravines and many many killing sites that people like panar and and other um other other places so but soviet jewish writers like kipnis and dernister and others uh wrote in yiddish about about and so and so did um wait is it Vasily? yeah so did Vasily Grossman and I, I believe that Arkady Zeltsev is one of the contributors yet yeah, to yes to, yes yeah and uh, so Arkady uh, later once again we're speaking about later he published a book on uh, uh he collected the information about the uh, memorials holocaust memorials in 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 the soviet union he published it in, in english and and i i received uh, a month ago as we are uh, as a gift the, the russian version a, a bit uh, improved yes and revised he actually if i'm not wrong he found 700 50 I believe monuments 750 monuments and and from my recollections 
of growing up in you know this conversation about the Holocaust, Babiya didn't play the central role. I'm sure it played the central role uh, in the families living uh, among those who lived in Kiev. Nice. But I, I, I didn't live in Kiev, yes, I uh, lived, in, in, lived in Ukraine, but a different place. And I don't remember Babiyal was even mentioned, yes. Of course, it, 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 the prominence and importance of, of uh, Babiyal was, uh, became uh, really uh, clear thanks to uh, Yevtushenko's poem and thanks to uh, Kuznetsov's uh, uh, story or, or whatever, it, it's, it's certainly not a novel, I don't know how to call it, long story, yes, on, on, oh. on Babi Yavya or something, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, other writings. But, but in general, uh, people remembered and, and visited, and this pilgrimage, if, if Kipnis was about this pilgrimage to Babia, then in other places it was a pilgrimage to a local monument, or maybe not local monument, people lived all over the, all the Soviet Union, but quite often on the victory day that was May the 9th, uh, and it was importantly after 1965, it was a day off. So it made it possible to travel, yes, to from from one place to another, and people would come to the place where their relatives, where friends were uh, murdered during the war. Not to Babiyal, but to a specific place. But now I, I read once uh, time and again that uh, Babiyal was the most important symbol of the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. I am not sure. Nowadays, maybe uh, here in Brighton Beach, uh, uh, 500 yards from, from the place where I, I am sitting now, there's a place called Babiya. And, and it's a playground for children, yes, that, that, that is in, in, in this Babiya. Yeah. So, so, so this is what you could be, because this is important in any way. So it goes to the point that the Holocaust as a kind of institution in memory and representation in the West is different from the geno Nazi genocide of Jews in the Soviet in Soviet Jewish memory and representation. That's an important point of our book and and many scholarly works on this on this subject. They are not the same entities. What is your book's contribution to the history of the Holocaust and to Holocaust studies? I don't know. I, I can maybe invent an answer, but I am not sure. It, it is like another another aspect. Yeah, and, and some information, and, and uh, like any book, yeah, that, that comes out on 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 this topic, it's it's another. You, know, you are building uh, um, a house, yes, or an edifice. It's it's a brick after a brick, yes, and, and each brick plays a role, yeah, because it is higher, it is stronger, and then so on. So each book is awesome. It makes the whole the whole edifice here yeah, higher and, and stronger. I hope so. Yes. I mean, I think that the point of this book and other books is is fairly straightforward. That the the representation and memorialization of victims of Nazi genocide in the Soviet Union comes with other layers, and the other layer that we examine in this book is the fighting of the war and the participation in the sense of, of victory and triumph that um, uh, is not usually, you know, a part of Holocaust remembrance in, in the West. Um, so people were proud to have fought on the front lines, to have been officers, to won, to have won medals, to to have achieved that victory. So victory and memorialization simultaneously. I think that would be the, uh, in a nutshell, the contribution to the historiography of the Holocaust, and also that there was this unique this form of memorialization and representation in film, literature, newspaper accounts, essays, and so forth that people generally who study the Holocaust from the German, Polish, French perspective don't know about. Yeah, there's a, a, a conception or to be precise, misconception, yeah, that uh, uh, in the Soviet Union, anything that had to do with the Holocaust was suppressed. Many things were suppressed in the Soviet Union, yes, and in, including, but still it is a, a huge number of uh, of writings, of, of many things. And, and every time I come across a new a new book and and a new something here on uh, on or, or, on the Holocaust. So the question is to to revive it, yes, to to include it into in, into the edifice, yes. To... What new perspectives does the book provide regarding Ilya Ehrenberg 
and his importance and legacy? Uh, first of all, it provides, uh, as far as remember it is in, in this book, that Ehrenbuch was essentially the first, it seems as the first, who spelled out and, and uh, uh, sp- uh, uh, put it in writing, the figure six million. Yeah, from that's from Julio Huranito. That's from a novel he published in the 20s, right? No, no, it, it is really... Yeah. In in uh, I believe in November this uh, this article by uh, um, what is his name uh, Rubinstein yes no no but also in the novel there is a novel that Ilya Ehrenberg wrote way before the Holocaust in which ah, he yes predicted. of course yeah. he predicted yeah. and he used the number six million just yeah. by the footnote. yeah yeah, yeah. But, but the Jews but, 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 were not tolerated in Europe. It is before. But but in in uh, in, in during the war, if we come oh, to okay. the war, it, he was apparently the first who in in the fall of nineteen forty four published. It was his newspaper, his hundreds and hundreds of his uh, articles. In one of his articles, he he mentioned the six million in the United States, the six million was for the first time it, it, there was an article in New York in the New York Times I believe it was in February 1945 it, it was the article was called six million something yes so I don't know whether the uh, the, the person who uh, uh, mentioned the six million in in uh, in the United States his name was uh, 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 Jacob uh, uh, Lishinsky, a prominent Soviet, uh, uh, a, a prominent Jewish uh, uh, demographer and economist, whether he took it from uh, Ehrenbuch's article or he was, he was knowledgeable enough to do it himself. But in any case, it was later. Ehrenbuch is, in, in general, it, he's, uh, uh, he's one of the central figures. For for any a, any history of the Second World War, including Jewish history or Jewish aspect of the history of the Second World War, and uh, I believe our, our uh, book somehow you know contributes to to uh, to to, uh, to reminding about him. Yes, though about Ehrenbuch afterwards, books came out. A few books came out about Aaron book, but but our our volume uh, also somehow yeah, contributes to 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 the story of Aaron book during the Second World War. What does your book teach us about trauma? How did Soviet Jewish writers comprehend and come to terms with trauma? It, it, it is your no, I mean. Yeah. No, I, I mean, you know, I'm I'm kind of anti the theory of trauma dominating discussions of mass public violence and historical events, because trauma is a memory you suppress. You don't remember it, and it plays out in your mind afterwards in the form of various symptoms, um, disorders that you, you know, you explode uh, at a moment that seems unrelated to anything in your violent past. These writers were confronted with ongoing violence and trace immediate traces of violence homes family members uh, objects and artifacts lives destroyed uh uh children babies murdered i mean they saw they said to quote Ilya ehrenberg i saw it they saw it they didn't suppress it so our book and most of my work and gennady's work and many people are they didn't suppress it they saw it and they wrote about it and they expressed it. I mean, we didn't talk about it in this book, but Peretz Markish wrote, I don't know, I think it was 2000 line poem called Milchoma, the war. And it's about the slaughter of, of Jews. Um, so I don't think it's a question of trauma. I think it's a question of confronting violence you know in in your face it happened in your shtetl it happened in the field outside your home when i try to make this real to students i live in a small college town champagne in the middle of cornfields and there's a neighboring town called uh uh muhammad or or um uh, monticello and i say supposing someone told you that the enemy was in monticello and that you should run away what would you do um, so I don't think it's really a question of trauma. I think that the the question of trauma maybe comes in the thirty you know thirty years afterwards. 
um, after the anti-cosmopolitan campaign and the doctor's plot and the, you know, it became very difficult then to speak. But in the 1940s, which is our period, um, I don't think it's a question of trauma at all. How did you meet the contributors to this volume? What were the challenges involved in your roles as editors? It's it's just regular stuff. Yes. So yes, when you edit a, a volume, it is more or less the same challenge every time. The the hardest one is to reject something. Yeah. And and uh, and uh, uh, easy, uh, uh, the result is you reject and and you lose a contact with a person or you reject and you are still in in civilized uh, relations with the person yeah this is but also to 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 edit to double check to yes i don't remember really serious problems do, do remember no it was it was i mean this was like the usual suspects you know um Olga Gershon, David Schneer, Joshua Rubinstein, Adyek Butnitsky, um, Marat Greenberg, you and me. I mean, this is these are professional, people. professional people. So, yeah, right, yeah. who work together as V. Gittleman. These are people we we already knew and worked together and were familiar with. So it wasn't it wasn't difficult um, to come up with names uh, or or to like track them down or or, or anything like that. Yeah, yes, I don't remember. Who did you prepare this book for? Who do you consider the ideal reader and the imagined audience? Who were you trying to reach in preparing this book? You know, I was surprised once. There's such a website, WorldCat. Mm -hmm. So it's somehow uh, accumulation of, of the information from various libraries. Not all the libraries of the entire world, but usually academic libraries or somehow uh, significant libraries. And and once I was looking for something, and suddenly I realized a, a figure comes up that this book is uh, in one thousand libraries, and I was surprised because this is an, an academic book. Usually, I know that all uh, other titles that I am involved in or written by me, it's if it's three hundred copies, it's it, it's a lot. It's a lot. It is real, real success because we are not, you know, we are not really uh, writing something called bestsellers, yeah. But but it means that that uh, uh, what we did, I mean, not only uh, uh, Harriet and, and and my involvement, but all all the contributors, it found an echo. Yes. So yeah somehow we weren't involved in, in in marketing and i can't say that academic studies press is a wonderful marketing uh, uh, enterprise yes but, but uh, apparently uh, that there was a, a a void yes and it it filled it it, it somehow it it, it 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 somehow put this void yes uh, at least partly it stopped being an empty place yeah this is who are the readers? And actually, not, not all the libraries. I, I just, you know, it's. Uh, 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 I, I checked some of the libraries. Not, not not all of them were academic libraries or just communal libraries or something. Also, to, to, uh, apparently addressing the general reader, and I was happy to see it here. Yeah, that is what it was a combination of professional and uh, and just lay reader. Yeah. What does this volume teach us about anti-Semitism? Did we discuss it in the volume? I, I don't believe we discussed it. Because, do, do, do you know, uh, I remember very well, Harriet mentioned this, uh, veterans and so on. And one of the questions that was uh, uh, discussed at the time from the audience, I believe, do you remember anti-Semitism when uh, you were in uh, fighting in the army? And and somehow it was a group of veterans. I don't remember how many people. It wasn't huge, but not, not two and maybe four. Eight, seven. I, I, I'm inventing a figure, but but all of them answered no, no. We were fighting, and and fighting was the most important thing, and so on. And of course, the issue of anti-Semitism is very serious during the Second World War. It is a separate issue, but but I don't believe we this. Ah, uh, no, we discussed it in our, in our book. Now I recall, in in one of the translations, uh, Mikhail Roms. Mikhail Rom's uh, memoirs, yes, and I remember that it starts. I don't remember exactly, but more or less paraphrasing. 
until 1941, do we have it here? Until 1941, we lived with without anti-Semitism, and somehow we managed. To, yeah, how 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 it is? One second. Um, yeah. Not Rivakov. It's Rom, right? Uh, Rom, yes. Yeah. Or uh, Michael Rom was a prominent Soviet film uh, director. I am not. Letter to Stalin. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Uh, until 1943, as we know, we had no anti-Semitism, comrades. Somehow we managed without. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so, so yeah. I mean, you know, the the um, the the big, you know, there was the book is about fighting world war ii so the big the big anti-semite is hitler uh to some far less extent is this book about the other big anti-semite stalin this is mostly about hitler and judeo-bolshevism um uh which we discussed was you know the alleged judeo-bolshevik specter that was going to destroy europe is is a big part of the the hitler uh motivation we briefly discussed like you know the uh fact that jews were accused of not being at the front but really the prominent theme of this book is not anti-semitism as such how does your book recontextualize the work and reputation of boris slutsky I know that his reputation is. Uh, I don't. I don't think everyone is trying to, 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 to shake his reputation. Yet yeah, there, there are some uh, interesting episodes in in his life. Yeah, that maybe, yeah, uh, are, are not so nice. Yeah, but otherwise he's he's an ex. He was an excellent poet. He was a, a soldier. So. I believe what is important about Slutsky that uh, in 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 our case that he left an important text and and we we published this text here. Right. I mean, the person to talk to about Slutsky is Marat Greenberg, right. who has the article of a chapter in the book. I mean, he's the one that's written the most about in English about the Jewish dimensions of Barry Slutsky's poetry. Why is the history of Soviet Jewish writers? important in the year 2023 what does the history of soviet jews during world war ii teach us in the year 2023 you know i, I am uh either old or uh, i was born being skeptical i don't believe that history is a teacher i don't believe that history teaches history gives an example history gives the information uh, history gives a uh, yeah, food for for thought for thinking but as a teacher you know we, we, we know that how many people repeat something that uh, uh, any person who 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 knows history and, and who uses history as a sort of wisdom uh, is not supposed to do so this is my answer. I, I don't do that, and I keep telling this my students that don't try to, to, uh, uh, to find it, it as a teaching. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, look at this as the information, intellectual and in, in information. Whatever. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you kindly tell us about what you've been working on since this book came out? Can you tell us about some of your subsequent work? Try to be quick. Uh, uh... In 2019, I published a book on David Bergelson called David Bergelson's Strange New World, and he very prominently wrote about the Holocaust. Um, I have a book coming out called As the Dust of the Earth, the Literature of Abandonment in Revolutionary Russia and Ukraine, and it's about the pogroms of the Russian Civil War era. Gennady and I co-edited a book that's out already called Building Modern Jewish Culture, the Kiev uh, Kulturliga. Um, and I think uh, uh, I'm working on a book of translations with Sasha Senderovich directly related to the material of this book called In the Shadow of the Holocaust. Thank you, um, Eric. I, I, so I, uh, a few books, yes, that uh, I published during this period. I published a book, Transatlantic Russian Jewishness. And it's uh, mainly about the uh, the New York Yiddish newspaper, the forwards, yes. I also published recently a book came out beginning of this year on Birabidjan, history of Birabidjan. Uh, 
by uh, the in, in the end of uh, of 2022 two volumes came out it's from uh, a soviet project that i'm also uh, the, one of the editors of, of, of all the volumes but two volumes came out one volume is uh, i wrote about the period in soviet uh, jewish history after stalin it's 1953-1967 and the volume came out it it has four uh, authors it's about uh, uh, again soviet jewish history during the second world war so it it, it is a direct echo yes of 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 the book we were just discussed at the moment i'm i'm writing a book that i i hope to finish by december that is called uh, yiddish uh, literature under surveillance you mentioned uh, censorship but in this case, this modern censorship it is uh, focuses mainly on uh, uh, the repressions uh, about uh, Yiddish writers who uh, ended up in uh, in the hands of the Soviet secret police. Some of them were executed, some of them survived, after, but spent many years in in labor camps. So this is what I'm working. Thank you for sharing. As we end today's dialogue, I am your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Harriet Morav and Gennady Estreich regarding their edited volume, Soviet Jews in World War II, Fighting, Witnessing, Remembering, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press in 2014. Gennady Estreich is professor in the Skirbel Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at New York University. Harriet Morav is a Center for Advanced Study Professor, Catherine and Bruce Bastian Professor of Global and Transnational Studies, a member of the Slavic Languages and Literatures Department and Interim Director of the Department of Comparative and World Literature at the University of Illinois. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, once again, yeah. Shana Tova. Thank you. Thank you.